I'm on like Tron. Um, anyway, did I hurt anyone's ears? Guys, it's so good to see you. I see uh, some new faces, old faces. Um, you're welcome here, and I appreciate you being here today. Also, those of us that are online, you know, I found out like tired parents love that when their kids aren't cooperating, instead of screaming at their kids, come on, it's time for us to go and joyfully worship God at church hurry up or you're grounded they say okay the kids are just not cooperative today we're going to spend a day at home and watch it here and that might actually be helpful I remember my daughter used to have a thing where she wouldn't go to church, uh, children's class in church until uh, she was like five years old she would not go we'd ask her Kathleen come on let's go to kids they have crafts she goes no no explanation no rhetoric she'd just say no so I remember we, before we planned this church, we were attending a church, and someone came up to us and said, you know, if you don't take your daughter and make her go to class, she'll never develop a pattern of wanting to be a part of the church. And we're like, really? We'll see how that happens. We'll just do this risky experiment with our daughter. And now my, I, I just have to say, my daughter is uh, starting next week as a pastoral intern at Hyde Park Vineyard which is my church crush. So she's, she works at the Hillel Center, is uh, a basically executive assistant admin to the rabbi there. And she's a pastoral intern at uh, Hyde Park Vineyard. And she's working for an economics think tank that evaluates the effectiveness of poverty interventions. And, uh, and she loves her daddy. Anyway, so she graduated. So I'm saying, hey, parents, people give you all this advice. If you don't do this, your kids will this. Just know God's got you. God's got you. Kids have free will. And you don't have to force anything on your kids. In fact, you know, if I were to take, who here is a big meat eater? Who loves meat more than anyone? Hey, Steve, if I took filet mignon, grabbed you in a headlock, and started shoving down your throat for 30 minutes, and you didn't die, you'd probably lose your taste for filet mignon. For, for a little bit. He says his carnivore instinct. So I'm just saying, guys, trust God with your kids. Anyway, that was just a random thing. The reason I'm thinking about kids so much is I'll stay in the back sometimes and talk to kids, and it helps me before I preach to draw pictures and color and do stuff a little bit. Or um, I still color, I still draw pictures, but instead of Legos, I use wood and nails and screws and chop saws because lumber is cheaper than Legos. Have you found that out? It's a lot cheaper to build a shed than buy a kit to make a Lego shed. Just saying. Anyway, hey, man, how about Jake last week? Jake. Jake, uh, it's so cool. I said, Jake, it's like cheating because if I hear you preach, I, I've got enough stuff to preach for the next five weeks on because he just sets it up like T-ball. He's just so good. And we've been talking about the genealogy of Christ, potentially a very boring topic. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so actually PG-13 if you really get into what begatting is all about. But the genealogy of Christ is not like a Western genealogy where we include everyone. Genealogies were greatest hits. 
The word for father meant forefather. To birth meant to either directly birth or indirectly birth. So you, we don't know sometimes if everyone in the genealogy, was that their kid or the great-great-grandchild? Genealogies were shorthand, memorized lists where people would know all the trigger points to tell the story of who they were. So when you wrote a genealogy, uh, Weird Uncle Ted got erased out of the genealogy, but all the good people got highlighted. If we're honest, those of us who have the ability to draw genealogy, we've got probably some embarrassing stuff. You know, uh, where's Aunt Lynn? Hi, Aunt Lynn. Aunt Lynn and I are both the people that don't get phased by family drama, so we dove into our family genealogy a bit, and ooh, scandal, scandal. Oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, there's another scandal. Oh, there's a scandal that Grandpa didn't even know about. He went to, my grandfather went to be with the Lord before he even knew how scandalous his background was. I love it. Because scandal don't phase me. Because God is the God of scandal redemption. And here's the, here's the thing that happens a lot of times when we teach the scriptures. That I love, uh, Steve, I'm so glad you got to read in uh, the scripture Hebrew and stuff like that. Or sing it, you know, the cantor. Were you a cantor? Is that the term in the synagogues? Steve, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I got Don and you. My eyes are messed up. Don, you're like, what the heck? You know, white guys all look the same. You know, uh, anyway, they're uh, singing it, right? Is the cantor? So cantor Steve. Um, when you would know your genealogy, the thing is a lot of times evangelical Christians and Roman Catholic Christians and Orthodox Christians at times have really misunderstood the scriptures in a way that the Jewish people understood the scriptures. Because in uh, the Jewish traditions, it was understanding that the scriptures... You know, people will write these atheist tracts saying, well, do you know all the contradictions in the Old Testament? It's like, yeah, and so did the authors. <laughs> There's actually a message in that because you'll have, you'll have one passage saying, God inspired David to take the census. Another passage saying, Satan inspired David to make the census. And by the way, all the rabbis throughout time knew that. They weren't, these guys were much more literary than us because they read this book over and over to the point where the whole book was read through every two weeks. They knew the story inside and out. And a lot of people believe that all the ancient rabbis literally knew the entire Tanakh by heart. At very least the Torah by heart. What they knew is when there is a contradiction or something off-putting, that becomes a pause there. You say, okay, what's God doing here? I love what uh, Jake was saying. What's the story behind the story? What's going on here? You're supposed to be weirded out. You're not supposed to nod your head like you do with your weird uncle say, okay, whatever. You, you, you say, what's going on here? And this idea, the, the, the idea of eating scripture was you chew it, you swallow it, stomach one digests it, you let it go back up, you chew it, swallow it, stomach two gets a pass at it, like we're cows. When it comes to reading scripture like cows, we process it through many chambers of the stomach. And that when we read scripture, when we go through uh, scripture, if we jump to application too fast, bad things are going to happen. And I actually have a relative uh, that once said, you know, I really, he was talking about uh, some cultural war issues that were going on, and which I'm not a big fan of cultural warring. 
I, by the way, in versus war, historically Christians were always medics in the early church. So I believe in culture medic. Like we go to the fields of the culture war and dress the wounds of both sides. Sound good? Who's here for signing up for the culture medic? All right, just I like that culture medic. So we we we're the wound dressers, and uh, he said I really like the idea of God saying kill your enemies and do this stuff, and, but I don't get the whole. It's the New Testament's much harder for me to understand. You know, love your enemies, and a lot of people go, well, it's the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. But then you see situations where David has a chance to kill the person who's going to kill him, Saul, who wants to kill him. Instead, he spares his life. And then that's elevated. And you notice the situations where mercy occurs that looks Jesus-y in the Old Testament, they have a different feel. And the way, as followers of Jesus, that we engage in the rabbinical practice of eating scripture and talking it through within a community of followers of God, people of the book, when we talk together, we have a clear instruction to say, where's Jesus in this? Where's Jesus in this? And the other question we ask is, where is Jesus not in this? And uh, my friend Doug Buckley has just such a gracious way of responding to people who, in the name of Jesus, do terrible, atrocious things. And where I would do a whole sermon about it, he just goes, that ain't Jesus. So repeat after me. This is going to be a, uh, a liturgical term for us. That ain't Jesus. Come on. That ain't Jesus. You know... Not caring for the poor. Not welcoming immigrants. Getting all hot and bothered because someone disagrees with you and thinks you need to go to war against them for it. Uh, putting personal liberty over care for the poor. Uh, you know, we can say, you know, that ain't Jesus. That ain't Jesus. One of the best things we can have when we read the scriptures in the Hebrew scriptures is to say that ain't Jesus. And it's very similar to what the rabbis say, well, that's God, that is not God. That is people's opinion about God or thought about God. So the question is, when is scripture talking about God and when is scripture an inspired historical account of how people talked about God? So all this to say, we're gonna talk about Father Abraham again. Because Abraham, I learned all these hero stories about Abraham. And I'll tell you, there's some commendable things about Abraham. But I would feel, I would, if I don't tell the bad stories, I think when you gloss over the bad stuff, you curate a culture that, where abuse can grow. When sin is hidden in any way, the black mold of abuse can grow. And something we learn from, you know, uh, any kind of recovery involves honestly telling your story, not whitewashing your story. Listen, we all come into the, you guys are here today, and everyone's got their, their thing about themselves that they hate, that they think if other people knew about, they wouldn't like them either. And after pastoring for almost 20 years with this group, can I just tell you something? Everyone's got their reason why God doesn't really love them. And it's our job to tell each other, that ain't Jesus. And I'm telling you, whatever you have done, whatever you have failed, whatever family member you have hurt, whatever, uh, whatever person you meant to connect with and now it's too late, God sees that and God says, today, do you know the reason why, one of the reasons why I think God begins so many great stories so late in people's lives? I mean, no one lives as long as Old Testament people lived, right? They didn't have McDonald's back then, 
Right? No one lives as long. I mean, most of us aren't going to live as long as Abraham had. Abraham only really got started doing anything that was good, a month still doing bad stuff, when he was older than all of us. So what's that say? In our youth-obsessed culture, we think, if I didn't do it right in my 20s, I'm screwed. We read a Bible that says, your first day is today. Your first day is today. And God's going to keep telling your story. And as a person who just turned 50, you know, I guess 50 is the new 40 when it comes to midlife crisis. And I've, I have been in this life evaluation thing. I've got to remind myself that God just loves his kids playing and he brings stuff out of chaos. And if God brings order out of chaos, which is the creation story, right? Uh, then uh, he can bring something out of my life because I feel like an embodiment of chaos sometimes. So Abraham, Father Abraham, uh, God called him, said through your Descendant, all people groups of the world will be blessed. All people groups of the world will be blessed. So we believe that descendant was Jesus. And Jesus at Pentecost took this Jewish story. The Holy Spirit of Jesus came down and no, they didn't have a mono language. Everyone heard in their own language. We had this idea that God is so much about all peoples that he loves the difference in language. It's part of the redemptive story. It's like, imagine uh, how many, a poem in every language that says something similar, but it's in every language, it's a poem. I mean, that's the beauty, this exponential increase in diversity that creates more and more diversity, more and more art. But Abraham's story can be really bad news, especially if you're a woman. Um, and I want to tell uh, the reason why I want to focus on some of the bad stories here is because I believe Jesus answers these stories. And it's important. Every person you read about in the Old Testament say, this reminds me of Jesus. That would really upset Jesus. Jesus would probably wreck all their furniture if they were doing this. You know, look, it where is Jesus in the mix? And what does Jesus think? Because I'm telling you, if you, buy, if you binge Matthew, give it a good old Netflix binge. It's four hours to listen to. Or if you double speed it like me, it's an hour and a half, or triple speed. Uh, and you listen to the book of Matthew over and over, get, tithe your Netflix or media binging. And the more you read it, eventually you'll be able to say, you'll know what the stank of Jesus smells like. So um, I want to read what I think is kind of a terrifying story. That, and then think of this in terms of Jesus. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household, the land I will show you. Oh, I already did that part. I want to skip, okay? Okay. Don't tell me I accidentally lost it. Oh, here we go problem when I shuffle my notes, it just messes things up. Okay, Abraham was about to enter Egypt, and he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful uh, woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and let you live. Say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. All right. So we're going out of order here, but you know, the sacrifice or the binding of Isaac that happened. Uh, notice how Abraham's quick to default to, hey, I'll be cool if someone else in my family suffers. That was the ancient Near East. 
This was culturally the norm. As a man in a patriarchal culture, other people's suffering will keep me from suffering. It wasn't that there's no suffering. It said, as the guy in charge, I want to outsource the suffering to women and children. And that's the default. There was no question. We don't have a, a, we don't have a two chapters of Abram agonizing. What am I going to do? They're going to, it's just like, okay, well, as you do. As you do, you know, when you're in a socially difficult situation, if you need to sacrifice the well-being of your wife, you know, as you do. And we look at this now because we've had a culture that in so many years has been influenced more by the Jesus story than it has been influenced by the Abraham story. In the Jesus story, his BFFs were women who bankrolled the ministry because the disciples probably couldn't get it together to do such. And they were the ones that had the courage to go to the tombs, to tomb to see Jesus when Jesus, when the disciples were lying low looking to go into witness protection or something like that. The first resurrection sermon preached by women, and we don't know much about a ton of first century church history other than when Paul wanted to say, it was said who the greatest of apostles was, just almost seems like a throwaway line. Oh, well, the greatest among the apostles is Junia. Wow. And he just assumed, well, I don't need to say anything about Junia. Everyone knows about Junia. Now, the problem with that is we don't. So Paul, I like, just mentions Junia because everyone's like, oh, yeah, Junia. You know, Junia. But we don't know who Junia was because they just trusted the oral tradition to go there. But then, you know. Men tend to forget the accomplishments of women and it really stinks. And that's why storytellers are important. So anyway, uh, back to this. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Guys, we tell our kids these Bible stories sometimes, right? This needs, if we, when we share these to our kids, if you think it's appropriate, you need to explain. Like, God sees when people do stuff like this, and he acts, and he acted in Jesus. And Jesus gave us an example of how we're appropriately relate to people of other genders and other powers. You know, if we have more power in a culture, Jesus makes it clear of how we relate. This is not our example. This is supposed to be terrifying. When we read this, we're supposed to be like, when you read this, if, if, if you have a daughter or a little sister or something, think of that being your daughter or little sister. What emotions does it elicit when a vulnerable, if you think of the most vulnerable person you know being treated like this, what do you feel? It's pretty bad. Abraham, I mean, would you want Abraham to be? Well, anyway, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. Why have you done this to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. The sinister scenario of the spouse turned sister. I was just trying to think of good titles for this passage. Now, there's a debate. This happened twice in Abram's life and once in his kid's life. This became a family trope of, like, throw your wife 
at the mercy of evil powers in order to cover your own butt. Has anyone here ever experienced someone's self-protective behavior exposing you to injury? Quite a few of you. Here's another way. One self-protective behavior is numbing. You know, when I'm hurting, I'll take that edge off. And when I take that edge off, I may treat others other than God wants them to be treated. You know, I would say most of us, our self-protective behavior, without exception, has probably hurt someone else. And we have all been hurt by self-protective behavior, right? And we see Jesus came from a family that was all about self-protective behavior. Jesus could have been stereo. Oh, Jesus, he, he, if he's anything like Grandpa Abraham, we're in trouble, right? But guess what? We have a Jesus that his family thought he was crazy, one. Two, his neighbors all treated his mom probably like she was a woman of ill repute. Three, he grew up in the hillbilly town of Nazareth that everyone made fun of, kind of like David Letterman used to always make fun of Cleveland. You know, everyone made fun of Nazareth. So Jesus, his parentage, his place, his people, all the Romans held his people group against him. Everything Jesus had, everything stacked against him. And here is Abraham trying to stack the odds in his favor. Now, we don't know if... Uh, there's debate of whether among the rabbis historically of whether w one of these instances where the Pharaoh consummated a relationship with his wife or not. And this one, it seems to indicate some illness went through. A lot of people figured it was herpes going through the palace or something like that. We don't know. But they said, well, maybe that prevented him from exploiting this person. We don't know. But we do know where, how Jesus lived with women. What I love about Jesus is Jesus was a complete human that never, never like, had sex. Jesus died a virgin, and he was a whole person. And a lot of people say you, you aren't anything unless you are hooking up on a regular basis, and Jesus disproved that. Not only that, Jesus was able to have egalitarian friendships with women in a culture where that never happened. That never happened. You know, Mary and Martha were close. Lazarus, well, he goes, okay, I'll, I'll go, I know he's sick and dying in the hospital. I'll go next day, and he dies. Oh, okay, Lazarus, come forth. He heals. You know, Jesus was close. It wasn't like he was friends with Mary and Martha because they were Lazarus. They were related to his buddy Lazarus. He was friends with Lazarus because they knew Mary and Martha. You don't see this, all right? And then we see uh, the way God tells a story in Jesus is women are the first to preach the resurrection. And now you all, it's interesting, uh, you listen to podcasts and all these things about church abuse. Do you know one way to really, uh, uh, if you want to avoid 80% of ill done in the name of Jesus, don't ever work in an environment where women aren't given full voice. If you want to avoid all the evil things that get done in the name of Jesus, or at least 80% of them, don't work in an area where women don't get a full voice. Because God being Trinity, God is like, I'm three but one, three but one. There's this idea of a plurality makes a single. A plurality makes a single. In, the vo in one way we did it, the voice of men, women, children, when they come together, we clearly hear the voice of God. 
But if it's just men talking, you will not hear the voice of God. You will hear the God of frat boy Chet. All right, you will hear the voice of frat boy Chet, not the voice of God. Sorry if any of you are named frat boy Chet, but I, I had to. Um, so God picks the underdogs. God's like, I want to make a nation. So I want to find an elderly and fertile couple that can't have kids or past child rearing years who are morally suspect. I want to make this great nation. God is the God of underdogs. I love it. You know, Jesus, you know, Jesus was a multiracial messiah. You look at Jesus' story, um, God incorporated people from different ethnicities into the gene pool of Jesus. Right? Heck, even, I mean, Moses is not, you know, a you know, forefather of Jesus, right? But Moses' wife was African. How's that say? Like, God's story is a multiracial story. So then we get this issue. Um, God picks underdogs, but who, anyone an underdog growing up? Who here was bullied as a kid? I, I, I know some of us were. Some of us were really cool. I was bullied, you know. A couple of you, we've shared stories. Some of us have been bullied by the same institution, actually. And I want to tell you, bullies get power. People who are bullied get power, can become bullies. Underdogs can become vicious pit bulls. Underdogs get power, and if we haven't encountered Jesus, you can use that power for ill. And how many people who felt disempowered, and they get power, and they use it to destroy? You know, um, there's a lot of indications that Adolf Hitler was not a socially accepted, successful person in his younger years. But man, that guy got some power, and look what happened. And I'm telling you, just because if you've been an underdog, and God, God can enter our life and bring some healing, and then we can do something bad with that. You know, the thing with social media has given us all the power to be bullies, no matter who we are, right? We can be a part of a collective group of hate. Like, it's amazing. Um, and we see Abraham, Abraham uh, loses his privilege of having land and status. Uh-oh, we're going to... Okay, let me get to this. I'll read fast forward here. God picks underdogs, but underdogs can be vicious with a little power. And one of the vicious things, if fear of other people meets power to do something about it, that's when bad things happen. Abram feared Pharaoh. He had the power in a patriarchal society to give his wife away. Fear plus power is even more scary. All right? Guys, God's rewriting all our stories right now. During the last few years of COVID stuff, the best and the worst has been pressed out. We're all like tubes of toothpaste that got stomped. Now we know if we're gel, if we're paste, or if we're some swirly mixture of the both. We all know what's inside of us because we got stomped. And some of us are still being stomped. You know when you get to the end of the toothpaste tube and then you start pushing it inside? I know some of you are being pushed inside now. And you're getting like an electro microscope amount of toothpaste squeezed out of you. Guys, the story of Abraham is God brought us to Jesus through a broken person. And because of Jesus, we don't have to wait 22, 52, 82 generations to get it right. Listen, you guys, you need to hear this. Yes, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. We don't have to wait multiple generations to be able to change the world. 
God is here just by being present and being the presence of God's love. You may prevent someone from killing themselves. Just by being the presence of God's love, you may be the relationship that tips someone else to get help instead of becoming homicidal. Already, there may be people, because I'm looking at you guys, who are not dead because of you being Christ-like just a little bit. I guarantee there's lives that have been saved because of you folks that you don't even know about. So let's just cast this deeper. If we don't have to be afraid, we look at Abraham and not, we don't hate on Abraham. We look, man, what's it like to have no hope? What would it be like to be so afraid that we would destroy the health of our marriage? What would it be like? Let's have compassion on Abraham and say, in my life, where have I compromised my loved ones, my friends, my families, best flourishing interests because I'm afraid? Have I set a boundary in my life? I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to speak this, or I'm not going to go there because I'm afraid, even though it means my family is less likely to flourish. Friends, uh, you are guaranteed to get hurt if you dive into this community. You know, we are not a, a, a zone that is free of people acting like people, but we have medics on call. We are medics of the culture world, medics of emotional war games. We're the medics for broken people trying to be friends with broken people, and then broken things happen. We don't believe in freedom from attack. We believe in healing from attack and empowerment to heal others. We are wounded healers. We are leaders that walk with the limp. I would say the losers, the wimps, and those with the limps. That's who we get to be. People say, oh, you just have such bad self-esteem. I said, no, I feel empowered. I feel convicted. I feel like everyone here is an outlier to something. Everyone here is an outsider to something. But you're an insider to the very beating heart of Jesus. You're an insider to the beating heart. A percentage of you, your family sacrificed you on the altar of their own brokenness. You know what? A ram did not appear in the thicket. And your parents went through with the sacrifice. Right? Your parents still don't know how to love you. You know, I, I know some of you, when I, I know many of you actually, when I think of the lack of pursuit, the lack of effort maybe a father or mother have spent in pursuing you as their little child, my heart breaks. I, I, mean, I look around here, I know so many stories of people that were not pursued by a mother, a father, or both. And one of my favorite things in this church is to see our wilder kids being run after by their parents in the back. When the parents are like, oh no, no one's, this is disturbing the whole service. My kid's doing this. And I'm like, no, you're just reminding me of Jesus. He runs after his kids. Let's have more disruptive kids. You know, people, and by the way, every time a kid's disruptive in church and you feel like, oh, my head's going to explode, that's part of the liturgy. When a kid's disruptive, we say, Lord Jesus, I invite your spirit in my heart to embrace the disruptive role of your Holy Spirit. I, I invite your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, to gift me with the fruit of patience, kindness, and gentleness, and help me to receive the grace as your disruptive child as I laugh at this disruptive kid and be glad that their parents have to deal with it and not me. Right? So here, I've just given you guys a gift, by the way. When kids are disruptive, you pray. Dude, I just, I hooked you up. 
I hooked you up. Can you imagine every time a kid is annoying you, pray that you would have the parent heart of God? I mean, so God, guys, today's the first day of the rest of your life, right? Today's the first minute of the rest of your life. Right now is the first minute. Life always begins anew in Jesus. We don't live with a rearview mirror unless Jesus is holding our hand and saying, I got you. And God in Jesus is rewriting our stories, just like he redid Abram's story. we got a couple other things to say about him. Then we'll go to Isaac, Jacob, and then we're going to all go to a showing of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Now, wouldn't that be cool, though, if it just synced up that way? And then we're going to get to Jesus and, Matt and Joseph getting freaked out because his wife is pregnant and they haven't had relations yet. We'll get to all that drama around Christmas, probably. Let's stand. Um, do we got, where's the communion element here? Oh, here we go. So, you know, Abraham's story ended up with Israel being under house arrest in Egypt, and they had Passover, and Jesus said, okay, this is brilliant. I mean, this is the genius of Jesus, really. He took the weirdest cultural observance possible, which is, we're going to celebrate freedom from slavery by eating tasteless bread made into soup. And we're going to sing a bunch of drinking songs. And lean to the left, lean to the right. Die, 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 fight, fight, fight. You know, and I'm going to make this to be about every people group, even ones that don't exist yet. Isn't Jesus is hysterical when you think this. Like, out of all the ceremonies, he took the exodus, the freedom meal of the Jewish people, which is beautiful. He said, this is the freedom meal for every man, woman, and child who was and is and is to come can enjoy me at this banquet. He took the bread and broke it. Hey, guys, this is my body broken for you. After supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, remembrance of me. Guys, how about every time you take a sip of anything, you say, I'm free. What if you have water fountain liturgy? So um, I'd like everyone to close their eyes. I'm going to pray a blessing over you, and then we're going to worship. I'm going to have people uh, who are ready to pray for people to line the sides, if you can do that right this instant. And we, I think uh, we have a couple of our regular prayer team out, so if you want to pinch hit here. If you guys want to do this, uh, just hold your hands out. I call it a body prayer. It's a nonverbal prayer. It just means, God, I need you. You don't have to do it, but it's not magic. But it's sign language for God. Jesus Christ, you meet us in addiction, you meet us in fear, you meet us in compulsion, you meet us in insecurity. Jesus, you begin our story today, and you're not put off by scandal. Jesus, I pray that you would give us a Bible story to each and one of our lives, a Bible story that's Jesus-infused. Give us some of that gospel story in our life. And I pray, God, these hands that are held out would become hands that receive and hands that heal. They would not become hands that are in a fist, but hands that hold. And God, whether it's our marriage, whether it's our new single status or our perpetual singles, wherever we were at, God, help us to have a vision for your story going further. Lord Jesus, I... Uh, I today uh, pray for those of us that are grasping from control and specifically insecurities or fears about body, body image, aging, way God. I just pray, God, uh, anyone who's uh, engaging in a form of self-harm 
or body hatred God right now, I pray, God, that we would be able to see your precious eyes looking at us, seeing us as precious people. Jesus, help us to live based on what you say about our bodies, not by what the world says about our bodies. And for those of us that are, you know, this turn of seasons or whatever, we're doing that whole summer depression thing, the sun is shining and we're not. I just pray, oh Lord, that you would bless those who are afflicted with acute depression right now as well. And that we would be able to meet you in our prayers. And for everyone who's suffering, God, right now, that you would meet them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.